Hi, this is Paul. I've got a bunch of issues I want to try to connect with. First of them is the Winsome Wars. And those of you who follow me on Twitter know that I fairly commonly talk about the Winsome Wars. What are the Winsome Wars? The Winsome Wars are the fight within evangelical Protestant Protestantism in terms of the approach to the hot-button issues in the culture wars. A little example of it, Ball, uh, Bob Smitana, uh, he writes for um, he writes for the Religion and News Service, which is sort of a progressive evangelical news service. And a lot of a lot of denominations get their news from it. Um, he writes, uh, still surprising that Beth Moore, Phil Visser, and Amy Grant are atop the evangelical naughty list, but Donald Trump is still blessed and highly favored. Now, Amy Grant is in some hot water because she apparently officiated, I think, for a niece's same-sex wedding. And, of course, Amy Grant from the 1980s was a huge evangelical musical icon. Um, he's got his father's eyes, El Shaddai, this enormous record in the 1980s that Amy Grant put out. Amy Grant then got in hot water at some point because she got a divorce and was remarried. And so Amy Grant has been on and off the naughty and nice list. Of course, of course Beth Moore with the Southern Baptist Convention, a whole bunch of sort of in-house Protestant fights. And in the middle of that is Phil Visser and his Holy Post podcast. And before that, the Phil Visser podcast. This was a Phil Visser was um, one of the early introductions to me to YouTube because I watched a lot of his Phil Visser podcast. And again, I'm sort of maybe because of all my high and openness, just sort of on the boundary of so many of these little fights. And of course, since Trump, there was this massive falling out within evangelicalism. And the, the rift has only opened up further, and I call this the winsome wars. It's not, it's not really so much the culture war. It's sort of the approach to the culture war that different sides want to take. And so you very easily say you got Phil Vischer on one side, and you've got, let's say, Doug Wilson on the other side. Um, Barbara responds to this post saying, I'd say it's because they are women more than anything else. To which Phil Visser says, hey, <laughs> I'm not a woman. And then I responded, that was the funniest exchange I've seen on Twitter for a long time. The Winsome Wars you can find, um, there was recently a series on a little um, Presbyterian church in Battleground, the name of the town, Battleground, Washington, held a conference uh, the Three Worlds of Evangelism sort of forefronted Aaron Wren and, um, let's see, as they've continued to make videos after they had their big splash with this conference. And I've, I've actually wanted to give some of these videos some significant treatment because there's a ton in there that's important. Now, lest you think this is all just sort of evangelical intramural fighting, which this is, I see this same fight and the tensions in it that go far beyond what's going on in evangelicalism around questions like same-sex marriage, uh, Democrats and Republicans in the United States, and all of these things. And in many respects, as is often true with evangelical intramural wars, they are proxies of the much larger war, of course, which the election of Donald Trump just sort of set off. That was that was sort of a um, that was sort of an earthquake in blue church America. Now the reason I say that is because we're as is often the case here in this little corner of the internet. We have some of those little quakes here too, and 
if there's anybody who's causing earthquakes, it's usually Jacob. And I know I've heard many comments from many of you. Um, you, you of course, want him banished from this channel. And others of you love Jacob. But, but Jacob is a uh, troublemaker and a pot stirrer. That's what Jacob does. And as on the comments of his video, um, this is something that's difficult for people to recognize about Jacob. Let's see if uh, where my um, um, where my comment is about this. Uh, Jacob is a very strange sort of Protestant Christian who manages to love his enemies with everything but his language. That's in my mind a pretty good summary of Jacob. And so Jacob was upset because uh, he what he wanted and what he wants from John Verveke is a takedown of Jordan B. Cooper. So to get even to get even more um, more deep into this thing, I'll tell a little story. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot had a conversation with Jordan B. Cooper, which I thought was an outstanding conversation. So many issues were raised that are connected to this little corner of the internet, not the least of which was John Verveke's treatment of Martin Luther in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I remember back when I saw that, I had some real questions about even some propositional factuality about um, what John had laid out. I didn't know some of John's history with Lutheranism. Some of that was evident by his treatment of Tillich, who was himself a Lutheran. So there, there's tons in there in this. And so a number after the release of the video of Jonathan Peugeot's conversation with Jordan B. Cooper, I um, contacted Jonathan Peugeot and Jordan B. Cooper and John Verveke and said, I think Jordan B. Cooper would be an interesting conversation partner to talk about Luther because Jordan B. Cooper is a Luther scholar. Now, Sam, I think actually in this video did an excellent job of bringing some balance and fairness to Jacob's uh, uh, earth-shaking strategies that he brings to many of these um, potential. If, if, Jacob, if Jacob finds a fault, he'll break it. Um, you know, he says, oh, there's potential for an earthquake. Let's make it happen. That, that tends to be what, what Jacob likes to do. But of course, you know, those of you who've heard me talk about Jacob, Jacob is, in many ways, I count a dear friend. This is, this is just how Jacob is. Um, if, you, if you can't be friends with someone who is like this, then don't be his friend. Um, I can be friends with people like this, even though he has said meaner and nastier things about me than just about anybody. And yet um, Jacob is, like I said, Jacob manages to love his enemies with everything but his language. And that's just kind of who Jacob is. So, so Sam, I thought, brought, did a good job in this little conversation of bringing some reality and balance back to it. But what, what's... Um, so we never were able to sort of land on a date between Jordan B. Cooper and John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot. And part of that was we were heading into summer and I knew that summer was going to be a, a big time for me. I was going to be in Europe. Uh, John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot are harder and harder to um, hierarchies bind and blind. And they're, they've been going up a hierarchy. You know, they haven't been on a status rocket, but their reach and their visibility and the, de the degree to which they are in demand has continued to rise. And now, I'm not saying anything against either of these gentlemen. Both of them are tremendously generous with their time and continue to do great work. But 
it's harder and harder to just land a conversation with John or Jonathan, as many of you who try to get rando slots with me say. It's really hard to land a rando slot with you. Jess P., very early on, when I was first having these conversations, was having conversation after conversation, I said, Jess, you know, you and I are talking a lot. He says, yeah, I'm getting him in now because I know that there's going to be a day that I can't get you as easily. So fair enough. So anyway, Jordan B. Cooper a number of times has expressed some frustration that there aren't Protestant voices within the Jordan Peterson sphere. Okay, that's sort of the broadest interpretation of this little quarter of the internet. Uh, Jordan B. Cooper was interested in Jordan Peterson, as have many on... Okay, so I talked about the Winsome Wars. So there's the there's Team Winsome and Team Antithesis. Um, that's what I'm going to call the two teams here. So what many conservative... Protestants enjoyed about Jordan Peterson within the time of Trump was that, like Trump, Peterson seemed to be team antithesis. Peterson seemed to, you know, be plain spoken, to tell people how it is. Now, one of the videos that I want to make at some point are the similarities between YouTube and church. You might remember a video a little ways back where I said that when Jordan Peterson makes the observation that people don't like being kicked in their axioms, as one commenter sort of rephrased my thought better than I had, no, what part of the function of churches is that axioms are stroked and reinforced. That's a big drive in YouTube. People look for YouTube and YouTubers who say what they want to say, only say it better, and say it to the people that all of the little mooks down below don't have the reach to say it to. It's sort of this um, revenge fantasy played out in YouTube land. And if you look at movies, part of the reason sort of these vigilante movies never go out of style is that many of us who feel small and powerful, this is a psychological justification, I'm sure that there are many more, many people sense that, well, I would, you know, I would, this, a wrong has been done to me. So I posted on Twitter, a, a porch pirate came around and, um, there were a pair of boots that my wife had ordered from Amazon, and she was hoping to wear them on a school field trip because she didn't want her feet being cold and wet in a in a wet location. So she just ordered this $35 pair of, of, of boots. And Amazon delivered them, put them right on our doorstep, and a woman came along and snatched that package and ran away with it. It wasn't until a few days later that my wife said, I don't know where those boots are that Amazon should have delivered them. I said, check it out. And of course, Amazon delivers it, takes a little picture, and the boots weren't there. So a doorbell camera, I got a couple uh, cameras around the house. So dialing up, sure enough, the saw the woman drive her car around, saw her get out of her car, grab the package, run away. That happened. Oh, I wasn't feeling very turn the other cheek. Um, there's a part in me that I, I've got a real strong sense of justice. And, you know, one of the things that I used to enjoy being was a campus security guard at Calvin College and, um, you know, chasing down wrongdoers. My uncle was a Long Island cop. And so, you know, I'd love nothing better than to catch a thief. Anybody who knows me, I remember there was one time that my wife heard, you know, gunshots outside and she was all scared and she was even upset with me because, some people run away from gunshots. Some people run. To, I want to go out there and see what's going on. So that's how I am. But 
it triggers me. And so I can very much be team antithesis. I want to see right wronged and, and wrongdoers put down and things corrected. And I mean, that's part of my, you know, how I got going in this little corner. But there's, there's also within me and my consciousness Congress, team winsome. And, you know, they go back and forth. Um, John's response to the criticism about Luther, I thought, was, was just classic John. And, and John very much also has team winsome and team antithesis in his heart. And, and there are times when I'm talking to John and I just want to say, John, we've built a lot of trust. Uh, we know each other personally. Um, you know, you can, as we're sparring, you can hit a little harder. I'm okay with that. Um, you know, sometimes, and John would tell me, would, would have more to say about this than I would. Um, I'm sure sometimes, because he does martial arts, I'm sure there's sometimes when he's sparring with someone, it's like, let's, let's, let's turn up the, let's turn up the heat a little bit on this sparring match and go back and forth a little bit more antithesis, a little less winsome. And so of course there's sort of a, there's sort of a spectrum between team winsome and team antithesis. And so in this, you know, and, and, and you see this, you know, Sam, Sam has a nice, I, I really like Sam's capacity for team winsome and team, team antithesis. And that makes for a good, that makes for a good conversation partner. Jacob, Jacob's mixture of antithesis and winsome is, is really unusual because he, he has his own little discord server, Jacob's ladder, and he gives people he fervently disagrees with. He, he has a certain sort of status hierarchy that he's done on his discord server. And, and he won't let, he won't let underlings talk up, you know, talk against people who are above them. That, that's sort of this hierarchy. And, and part of what you, you hear Jacob continually decrying in Protestantism is in fact sort of this egalitarian priesthood of all believers, all of us saints and sinners, and, and all of these kinds of ideas. So these ideas are, are all around. And, and so when I watch the drama, which again is usually on Jacob's channel, I mean, drama to such a degree that Chad Chad pulled down his channel, Friday Morning Nameless, which is a real loss, but I totally understand. I mean, some, Jordan Peterson will talk about agreeableness and disagreeableness. For, for many people, many people just simply don't want conflict within certain spaces. And that's, again, sort of the difference between winsome and an antithesis. Some people have a big appetite for antithesis, and some people don't. And so if the conflict gets too heated, they'll just simply back out. If you all want to fight, you can fight without me. I'm out of here. And fair enough. This is part of how we deal with each other and work with each other. So there's also a thing called sort of Christian YouTube. And I've mentioned this on Christian YouTube very much gets into triggers these dynamics that are similar on church and YouTube. What some people want is they want they want their axioms stroked and they want their axioms defended and they want to see their axioms victorious on the little screen. This is part of what fueled the um, you know the phileo Nikea, debates and wars between atheists and theists. And, and I think many of us have some of that in us. We, we love a win. That's, that's just simply part of who we are. 
But um, I, I think part of how to sort of characterize certain segments on the internet, and you, you, as, as Sam pointed out in his conversation with Jacob, you see this tension, let's say, even, let's say, within orthodoxy. Look at Jonathan Peugeot and Jay Dyer. You know, very different approaches to, 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 to dealing with who they talk to. And it's sort of this, this spectrum between, say, Team Winsome and Team Antithesis. Team Antithesis wants bright lines, sharp contrast, black and white. Team Winsome is saying, well, let's, um, let's, let's pull punches. Let's, let's reinforce the conversation. And I think part of why I think Team Winsome has a lot to say for itself is if you actually strengthen the trust between two people, you can spar better. And I think that's the thing. If you, let's say you have a brand new sparring partner and you get into the ring and right away they just come at you with everything. And it's like, hey, well, um, maybe maybe we should build trust first because I want to know if, if, if you have something personally against me. Or I want to know if, basically it's a question, I think it's connected actually to this whole conversation about rough and tumble play. I think it has to do with sort of, you know, what what happens when dad, you know, throws the kids around and you have little wrestling matches on the floor and you do all this stuff. The kids learn the the limits of their power. And, you know, if it's if you're wrestling with, let's say, a fifth grader and they decide to make a fist and knock in the balls, um, usually dad's going to have a pretty significant response to that and say, no, this isn't how we play. Um, we play, we wrestle, we do things. I remember when I was in grade school, I was, uh, you know, boys would just wrestle and you'd wrestle different boys and you have this little petty hierarchy on the, on the playground. And I remember I was wrestling with this one kid who was supposed to be, he was a grade younger than me. He was supposed to be a little tough and I was getting the better of him. And he reached around and he just grabbed my balls. And it was like, you know, Hey, wait a minute. That's this. This isn't how we do this, and um, you know, I was probably a little bigger than him, and then I, you know, you take it to another level, and so the rough and tumble play is part of this. Now, there was I thought a a really fine video between um, Gavin Orland, who both of these guys have PhDs. Gavin Orland is oh I don't I. You know, I've I've subscribed to his channel, and you know, I hear about these guys. I think they're much more in Christian. I think they're much more in Christian YouTube than I am, and again, that's a that's a spectrum too. You know what I, what I saw from what I saw from Jordan Jordan Cooper, as I've seen from many Protestants, as, as sort of YouTube is about, is you know, it's it's smaller YouTubers looking for attention from not only bigger YouTubers but bigger YouTubers' audience, and I'll completely. I'll completely confess to the fact that when I started doing my videos, I didn't know whether or not I was ever going to have a chance to talk to Jordan Peterson, but I wanted to talk to his audience. And so one of the ways to talk to Jordan Peterson's audience is to talk about Jordan Peterson and do some commentaries on them and then engage the audience. And it's that way that you sort of develop a hierarchy and you have mooks and knights and you sort of, you know, sort of build that up. And so Jordan... Jordan B. Cooper's been making noise on his channel fairly regularly about, you know, I, I wish Jordan Peterson would talk to more Protestants. I wish Protestants would be more be in this conversation because the Orthodox and the Catholics tend to tend to tend to get all the attention. And I think there's some reasons for that, but I, I don't think Protestants have been wholly out of the conversation, given the fact that um, 
whatever you might say about my beard and whatever you might say of whatever notes you might send me that, oh, Paul, when are you going to convert to, to orthodoxy? When are you going to convert to Catholicism? And I keep telling you, uh, no plans, no plans to do either. I'm a Protestant and I think I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm really fairly categorized as a Protestant. Now, another video I want to make at some point is the fact that there are certain spirits, certain movements, which move through history that sort of retcon all the rest of history. And, and in that video, I'll have to go into again, what do I mean by retcon? But postmodernity does this, Protestantism does this. And, and actually that comes out in this video when they talk about Protestants, because what they have to do is sort of define the term. Because in many respects, everything that's not Orthodox or Catholic gets sort of lumped into Protestant. Even some of the, even some of the, the groups like the LDS or the, the well, Seventh-day Adventists, quite increasingly clearly, but the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it's really helpful to sort of define what denominations are Protestant as such or self-consciously Protestant, depending, of course, on your definitions of Protestant and which, which, def, which groups are sort of culturally Protestant. It's sort of like big O orthodoxy is, you know, one of these family of the Orthodox churches, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, yada, yada, yada. Greek Orthodox, and then Orthodoxy, small o Orthodoxy. Um, and I would say sort of big P Protestantism. Well, they're going to define it, so I wanted to play a little bit of this video because it's a really excellent video. Broad categories and gave you a couple. But like Grim Grizz, i got to get my sound straight before I, before I do this. Um, here we go. For anybody watching this, when I use the term Protestant, we could use the term Protestant. That has some boundaries. There are doctrinal parameters. You know, you've got the sola scriptura, sola fide. You have the five solas, particularly those two. You've got the priesthood of all believers. You've got an emphasis upon preaching and worship. You've got the marks of the church and how that's understood. There's certain things that are common to those classical Protestant traditions. Um, and then, so, you, so this would exclude a lot of groups that may have some yes. beliefs about Jesus, but don't hold to Protestant doctrines like sola scriptura and sola fide. And then you could use the term classical Protestantism or magisterial Protestantism even more narrowly to focus on especially the Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed traditions. And I, I use the term Protestant without the qualifier classical to, to include the Methodists and Baptists and then many contemporary, like there's the charismatic movement and so forth. I think they'd fit within the parameters of just the term Protestant. One thing I want to say just to help people out there. Uh, Anabaptist and Baptist are not the same thing. <laughs> People don't realize this. Anabaptist, sociological term, 16th century, continental Europe mainly. Baptist, mainly Britain, 17th century, denominational term. So it's so anyway, that's a big old thing. But um, yes, and that's why I say Baptist, kind of coming out of the Reformed movement, because I'm distinguishing them. I mean, the Anabaptists, they are a tradition in their own right, but a very different one. You know, I, I don't uh, very different from at least the magisterial Protestant tradition. So today you think of like the Mennonites or Amish, but but very, very different roots, I think, than than like a Baptist tradition as you generally think of it in the United States. 
Right. And when, uh, these are all, I'm going off script already, so forgive me, but just yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining these these attacks coming and people are saying, sure. oh, you guys are just throwing the umbrella so wide that you're defending your identity, even though you don't agree with these other people. But I just think now, he is not throwing the, the, uh, the umbrella anywhere near as wide as Jacob, who wants to, who, you know, I think if I think if Jacob sees. Gosh, I think if Jacob sees um, uh, well, just about the most egalitarian thing you could imagine, he'd call it Protestant. So his, his term is really is really vague. I think this is kind of simple. You can use a term that is a broader level of identity. So you can say, I'm a Protestant Christian. Within that, I'm a Reformed Christian or something like this. Just like a Roman Catholic could say, I'm a Christian. And then that's a broader level of identity. You, a, a Roman Catholic Christian could defend Christianity or even broader. You could say, I'm a, I'm a theist. And you could defend theism by quoting other theists, even if they're not Roman Catholics. So I don't really see much coherence to this concern when people accuse us of um, defending the broader label. Because, you know, we recognize, yeah, we are a part of different particular local churches that have different theology and so forth. But that doesn't mean we can't have this other term that describes the larger movement we're a part of. I don't know if you want to comment on that at all. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I mean, I agree. But I would I'd also say the same thing is true of Roman Catholicism as well. I mean, to, to some degree, every group has its differences within that group. So it, it, the question is, you know, how broad are those differences? But um, I know plenty of Roman Catholics that would identify themselves in very, very different ways from one another. You know, and, and they're all fine using the label Roman Catholic to, to define their own. And, and usually they say Catholic. I know I use the term Roman Catholic. I do that on purpose because I, I don't want to give them the Catholicity of the church. So I, I, I call them the Roman. They're the Roman part of the church. Uh, I'm not denying that they're the church at all. But uh, but I think they, you know, they, they have their distinctions, too. And, and this is something that, that I find. You know, that, that little comment, I'm not denying that they're the church at all. That sounds like a little throwaway comment. He made it in purpose, and he made it intentionally. And a, you know, if you look at my conversation with Jordan B. Cooper, um, okay, so you got winsome and you got antithetical. You go back in my archives, and you can find that I spoke with Christian Cobes de May, not too far from the time I spoke with, um, I spoke with Lindsay, and. People, why, why? In, in fact, Christian Cobes Dumay wondered why, why such a strange interview. She wanted to go after and sort sort of a relevance realization some of the antith antithetical things, and I've got plenty of antithetical things about Christian Cobes Dumay, who is a professor of my alma mater at Calvin University. We have plenty of beefs. I was, I, I received, I received her book. I was, I was quite excited to read it. I wasn't happy with the book. And then when I made a critique on Twitter, she wasn't happy with me. So that, that, that's sort of the way this thing goes. But a generation ago, I don't, Jordan B. Cooper is a, is a, he's in a cons small conservative Lutheran denomination. Now there's the Lutheran, um, the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church, which is one of the larger conservative Lutheran denominations. They're moderate, they're in some ways, sort of parallel with the CRC. But um, Jordan B. Cooper comes from a conservative part of the Lutheran Church. And what he just said about the Catholic Church is an enormously important thing, even though he can, he can say it quite easily. This is part of the conversation and how it continues to develop. A little bit frustrating in some of these conversations is that 
it, it, Protestantism is often attacked as like, you're so divided, almost as if Rome has this very united front when they're going after Protestantism. But then if you if you spend time within, you know, Roman Catholic theology discussion or debate groups, go on forums online, I mean, they're going after each other about this or that. Um, I think the fact is we, we all just have we all have larger groups that we're a part of and also have disagreements. Like, I think that's just the nature of how the church works, because that's the nature of just not having like infallible access to, uh, you know, how we interpret truth. Uh, and I understand Rome wants to add the infallible interpreter, which which I understand the, the desire for that. But at the same time, how you interpret tradition also does differ between Roman Catholics, too. Um, so so my argument is, I think that if, you know, just as much as Rome was able to speak of some coherent Roman Catholic theology, even though there are many differences, I think we can speak about a, a coherent Protestantism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that doesn't minimize the differences. And obviously, you and I, we've we've had we've had some, you know, kind of. De- I don't know. Now, it's helpful to recognize when a term is used theologically, and when it's sociological. Now, Protestantism again. Protestantism is a term that we can use as sort of a a, a label for this enormous retconning of history that you see in the Enlightenment. Now, now part of where I think my conversation with Jordan B. Cooper and John Verveke is going to go is going to be in what happens downstream of these movements and how, how well can we attribute what happens downstream to what happened upstream Part of the difficulty is that unlike rivers, which are the metaphors that we use, if you if you look at, let's say, the water that's just south of Sacramento here, you've got water that has come from the Sacramento River, which goes up through the Central Valley, up through farmland, and so you get a lot of runoff from those farmlands, so you're going to have a lot of chemicals from farms that are in that. And then you have water from the American River. And the water from the American River comes right out of the mountains, down through the foothills. Everybody loves American River water because American River, river water is clean. It's fallen from the sky. It's down onto the mountains. Now, um, uh, 175 years ago, that water wasn't very clean, clean because they used those monitors and that, and that river to just sort of take apart the countryside. Um, the water isn't even as clean as we might like because they used mercury and gold mining processes, et cetera, et cetera. My point is this late in the cultural game, there are so many influences in any given moment. A big piece of what we're going to talk about, I'm sure, will be Martin Luther and the degree to which Luther and the movement is responsible for some things that have come about in the 20th century. I was just listening to the Rest is History podcast, and they had their World Cup thing, and they had a story about Denmark. It's an amazing story about how Denmark saved their Jews. They didn't have a lot of them. They had about 8,000 of them. Denmark saved their Jews, and Holland did not. And again, those of you who followed this channel closely knows that my um, people in my family tree who were Jews in the Netherlands were killed in, um, in the Second World War. In Denmark, they weren't. Now, no one is going to argue that Denmark isn't Lutheran. Uh, Kierkegaard, um, deeply Danish, deeply Lutheran. Why 
do you have the massacre of the Jews in Lutheran Germany, and you don't have the massacre of the Jews in Lutheran, um, in, 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 in the Lutheran Danish countries. Um, they escaped to, they escaped to Switzerland, another mat, not Switzerland, but to Sweden, another massively Lutheran country. And so part of the reason in this little corner of the internet, we tend to lean winsome is in order to get higher resolution when we finally get around to dealing with the antithetical and hopefully to get more truth because when it comes to me and myself, I know that the more antithetical I get sometimes, the quicker I pop off, um, less nuance, sometimes less truth. I'm going to keep my eye on the, uh, on the security camera here. So again, I thought this was a, this was a really good, this was a really good conversation. And I want to jump ahead to a, po a point where um, Orland makes it, has a nice list. But I, just to follow up from the Reformed side of things, we've quoted the Augsburg Confection, uh, Confession. Uh, Calvin, you, you referenced his dispute with Cardinal Sadaletto in 1539. I'm just quoting from my—I I compile some of these in my book, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Another spot is in his prefatory letter to King Francis in the Institutes, where he just gives a litany. He gives like two dozen examples of issues, and he's basically saying—well, I'll quote him in his own words— from his dispute with Cardinal Sadaletto, quote, our agreement with antiquity is far greater than yours. All we have attempted is to renew the ancient form of the church. And then he, by ancient, he means like fourth century, fifth century, third century. He's talking about, he's referencing scholars from that, or church fathers from that time. Now, lest someone be incredulous about this, let me give 12 examples. <laughs> um, now, I'm just, I'm not going to go through these. I'm just going to mention them. And then after this, I'll see what you want to say about this. Uh, here's what I want to say to preface it. We're not saying that on every issue, the Protestants are in the right with respect to the patristic witness. Not true. Not true. It is messy. We're saying on the main issues, it's a, it's a matter of uh, uh, comparison. Okay. Who's closer? And uh, so some of the ones that Calvin mentions and that I think of a lot is, number one, the system of salvation with indulgences and the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit, the, scho the scholarship on that is very clear. That's a medieval idea. Transubstantiation as the particular mechanism for real presence. That's medieval. And, and you can see that in the turbulence of its, how it's developing in the early medieval era. Papal infallibility. That there are seven sacraments particularly. You can find... People talking about more than two, but nobody's, I don't know anybody who's saying there's seven early on. Um, the veneration of images. I'm doing work on that right now. I'm very convinced that's that's a late patristic accretion. Masses for the dead to reduce time in purgatory. Okay, I don't think that's representative of the earliest practices. Withholding communion in both kinds. Withholding scripture to the vernacular. Violence as justified by official church theology in magisterial teaching. The elaborate role of Mary in daily piety, legalism in monasteries, and the complete loss of rigor in church discipline. Okay, those are examples I would mention as what the reformers were saying. Look at these important issues, and the, the Roman Catholics are way further from the patristic testimony than the Protestants on those. So in case anyone's saying you don't have really... It's just a claim. You don't have specifics like, no, 
there's a lot of things you can see that are mushrooming up in that medieval era. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And that's a, that's a really good list. I mean, that's very similar to the kind of the list, the same list that I would probably give on these issues. Um, like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, I do a series uh, going through the Augsburg Confession, which I've been doing for a while. Um, and I've, at this point, we've just kind of gotten into the abuses section, so the second half of the Augsburg Confession, which starts to get into specific medieval practices. So, so I've been exploring a bit of this recently and and doing some reading, particularly on uh, the issue of withholding the cup from the laity. Mm. I, I mean, there, and you brought that up as one of your points, but to me, that's so significant because here is is an example of a practice that has no historical support. I mean, none. I mean, there is no father who allows for the, the cup being, you know, withheld from blade. It just isn't there in the, in the early church. But we also there have an example of a very clear scriptural command that is continual for the church being withheld or not. I mean, they're saying, you know, Jesus said, do this. The entire history of the church says do this. And at some point in the late medieval period, it's decided that the church shouldn't do this. You know, so I, I think that among many other issues, um, they do become kind of the groundwork for a lot of the debates between uh, the Protestants and Roman Catholics, say, throughout the 17th century, as you get a lot of the more detailed scholastic work. You have Robert Bellarmine writing, and then you have uh, guys like Johann Gerhard from the Lutheran side, or you have like a Francis Turretin writing from the Reformed side, or, or, or uh, you know, these various other theologians that are looking at, at the early church. And I think that really the historical work just made it clear that there were many practices in the medieval church that, and especially post-Trent, um, that just don't have patristic precedent at all. Okay, so, so this is a pretty standard conversation between Protestants or Protestants and Catholics with respect to church practice, church belief, and a lot of the Protestant Reformation fights are about these things. Now, I'm not about to say these issues aren't important, but for many people today, these issues aren't salient. Um, to a degree, partly because the Roman Catholic Church has changed so much and can has continued to change. And so it's, these, are the, these are the kinds of issues. But, you know, these two individuals are having this conversation between two, here are two Protestant professional theologians. Both of them have PhDs. Both of them are working YouTube. Um, that's, that's this. Um, and Christian YouTube will tend to, well, I think this is actually a really nice segment of Christian YouTube because they're, they're clear. Um, they're not, they're not playing a lot of, playing a lot of games. A lot of what's happening in this little corner, however, is, is, you know, quite a bit different. And hopefully, the idea is that in this little corner, we can have better conversations and, and in my opinion, build enough, build enough trust between people so that we can deal with a lot of these more difficult issues in a better way than certainly the way many of these issues were dealt with in the Protestant Reformation and the centuries after. So wanted to make this video about this. Uh, as always, tell me what you think. Leave a comment.